0: Preface to Rural Improvement by Frank A. Wall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Rural Improvement The Principles of Civic Art Applied to Rural Conditions, Including Village Improvement and the Betterment of the Open Country by Frank A. Wall. Illustrated. Copyright 1914 by Orange Joddy Company, All Rights Reserved. Inscribed to J. Horace McFarland, President of the American Civic Association, ardent and effective advocate of a country clean, beautiful, and convenient. Preface Big issues are stirring in the rural districts of America. The farming communities and the small towns dependent on them have reached a stage of genuine and confident prosperity. It is no longer a question with them whether they can live through the winter and pay the interest on the mortgage the main problem is not now how to make more money but how to live more comfortably the way the farmers spend money for automobiles proves this better homes and better home surroundings are the matters of prime concern better schools better playgrounds better churches better libraries better roads are wanted better cemeteries even in the main these are community problems to be solved by the cooperative action of the whole neighborhood. Cooperation has been talked of as the coming remedy for all the farmers' difficulties, but the word has been given too narrow a meaning and application. The neighborhood can accomplish more by cooperating to own a grange hall, or the boys can do better cooperating to maintain a baseball league than the farmers can cooperating to buy fertilizer 25 cents at a market price. And the best place to learn how to cooperate is in the care of public property, such as parks, commons, playgrounds, schools, and roads which we own in common. The country needs to be improved. Some of us want to live in the country and love it, hate to admit this. But the steady stream of young folks, and some older ones, moving toward the city shows that most people still find the city more attractive than the country. Look what has been done for the city fine schools, theatres, picture shows, playgrounds, parks, music, boulevards, play, beauty, and entertainment. The simple fact is that the country must do something to offset these attractions or the exodus of live young men and women will go on forever. Better farming, bigger crops and better prices will do something. Better houses and household equipment will do more. Better neighbourhood equipment for recreation and wholesome social intercourse will do still more there must be improvement all along the line. This is the rule improvement which I would preach. At the same time I would point out that any improvement of this sort can best begin on its physical side. The concrete problems of physical property are easier to grasp, and if it is true, as it partly is, that a man must have a sound body in order to support a vigorous mind and a healthy conscience. It is more truly true, That a community must be clean and orderly physically in order to be clean and orderly socially and morally one of the strongest elements in general agricultural improvement is to be found in the contribution offered by civic art the art which builds a sound physical frame for the support of a healthy community life to this great cause i offer my small contribution frank a war amherst massachusetts july 1914 country and city are united in an indissoluble partnership which is equitable and for their mutual benefit wilbert l anderson the country town the provision of this civic ideal will have other value than merely that of popular education it would offer inspiration nor will this inspiration be material only but is clearly moral and political and intellectual the pride that enables a man to proclaim himself a citizen of no mean city awakens in his heart high desires that had before been dormant. Charles Malford Robinson, Modern Civic Art. To the multitude are carried some of the fruits of prosperity, leisure, and culture. From them again, democracy, fraternity, freedom of social expression. With them is developed a new dynamic force, capable of remaking the American community by inspiring the American citizen with a new civic spirit. Charles Zublin, A Decade of Civic Development. End of preface. Chapter 1 of Rural Improvement by Frank A. Waugh. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org, recorded by Leon Harvey. Country and city are united in an indissoluble partnership, which is equitable, and for their mutual profit, Wilbur L. Anderson, The Country Town. The provision of this civic ideal will have other value than merely that of popular education. It will offer inspiration, nor will this inspiration be material only, but as clearly moral and political and intellectual. The pride that enables a man to proclaim himself a citizen of no mean city awakens in his heart higher desires than had before been dormant. Charles Mulford Robinson. Modern civic art. To the multitude are carried some of the fruits of prosperity, leisure, and culture. From there again democracy, fraternity, freedom of social expression. With them is developed a new dynamic force capable of remaking the American community by inspiring the American citizen with the new civic spirit. Charles Zublin, A Decade of Civil Development Chapter 1. Definitions and Principles Art in general has no very high reputation in America. It is thought to be not sufficiently practical. Yet at present, this mistaken view is giving way to a better understanding. In the first place, people are beginning to see that anything is none the less useful for being beautiful. A beautiful bridge will carry just as big a load as an ugly one. A beautiful and dignified house is just as comfortable as a wretched plain one. A well-proportioned silo will keep the sewage just as sweet as an ugly unpainted one with the top off. Beauty does not interfere with utility, nor utility with beauty. The two are sisters. They should walk hand in hand. Nothing can be truly beautiful unless it is perfectly suited to its proper use, and conversely, nothing can perfectly serve its highest uses unless it is beautiful. Thus we are awakening to this country, to put the whole meaning into one phrase, the necessity of having things done right a barn is not strictly right until it serves its native purposes to the fullest possible measure and when this full and high and overflowing stage of utility is reached the barn must be also beautiful now in public affairs which we may call also civic affairs or community affairs we reach this conclusion a trifle later We sooner see that our own houses and silos must be right than we realize that the public schoolhouses, roads and cemeteries come under the same high necessity. But this second stage has been fully reached in many American communities, and the need is keenly felt of realizing in all public works the highest utility combined with the utmost beauty. And this conclusion may almost be adopted as a definition of art. To realize a maximum of utility combined with a maximum of beauty. When thus rightly understood, art becomes an indispensable factor in daily life, whether private or public life, and not a mere superfluity, fit for the attention only of dudes, decadents, and highbrows. Civil art, therefore, may be defined as a practice of doing things right with reference to all public works, or to state it more explicitly, it is the constant endeavour to secure in all public works the maximum of utility combined with the maximum of beauty. Civic art thus becomes a branch of landscape architecture, which endeavours to secure, for all the outdoor needs of humanity, the greatest convenience, plus the utmost order of beauty. The principles of civic art, then, are the same as those of landscape architecture, and this great art must be chiefly appealed to, to supply both the principles and the detailed practices for application in the newer branch of civic art. I would lead us too far afield from our present studies should we attempt here to elucidate all the basic principles of landscape architecture and to apply them to the subject in hand. We may only say that here the great principles of order which are the principles of design rule supreme. To have everything done in perfect order, to have everything kept in perfect order, this is the keynote of civic art. On the previous page a photo is displayed a Colorado mining village surrounded by beautiful natural scenery. Silvergard strives to secure this perfect good order, this maximum of utility plus a maximum of beauty in the things which belong to the community. These public possessions are streets, commons, parks, playgrounds, school buildings, churches, libraries, town halls, courthouses, and scenery, with various other important items. Unfortunately, the sense and even the knowledge of common public ownership in such things is still very weak in America. For too many years, we have laid every stress on the public ownership of our own individual property. All laws have been made to protect the individuals in this personal right. All preaching is aimed to quicken conscience with reference to the rights of others, and so we have almost forgotten that most of the greatest gifts in the world belong to nobody, that is, to everybody, that is, to us all. The air and the blue sky still belong to us anyway. The sweet water that falls from heaven belongs to us too, except that many of us have chosen to live in cities and to pay someone to bring us our share of it. Then the schools are not mine nor yours, but ours, and the roads belong to no man, though the automobile hog may act as though they did, and the churches are the property of all. Though Protestant secretarianism has indirectly inculcated the belief that one or two men own each church, and the cemeteries are public property where we are all at last free and equal in spite of the declaration of independence. And so all of us, acting together, strive to secure the best results attainable in the development of our common property, to secure the very highest utility, to enjoy the greatest possible beauty, and to maintain everything in the best possible order. This is civic art. In the cities, civic art has been developed first, there are sufficient reasons for that fact, but the country equally with the city has public property and should have more, and this property needs to be developed to its highest utility and to be equipped with every available beauty. Unfortunately, again, the sense of common ownership is weaker in the country than in the city and harder to arouse practical cooperation is harder to secure. Greater efforts are necessary, therefore, to get community improvements under way in the country. Another difficulty lies in the fact that communities have no such definite geographic limits in the rural districts as in the cities. An incorporated city has very precise boundaries. Any individual family resides in one city and not in two. Families with residences in New York, Newport, Palm Beach and Reno do not count for anything in any connection. In the country, however, every farm is the centre of a neighbourhood. These neighbourhoods overlap and overlap again never coming to an end except at the ocean or the impassable mountain. Practically this is the very difficult situation throughout the central and western states. In the New England states, the town unit is so well developed politically that it makes a very convenient basis for all kinds of community action. A political club, a farmer's club, or a civic improvement society may easily be organized for any given town. Everyone in the town will accept his natural allegiance with such a society and work with it to the best of his ability. In the central and western states, the county is a political unit, but the county is too big for the most effective work in civic betterment. Certain enterprises, to be sure, can be undertaken on a country-wide scale and should then be under the direction of county societies. In these states, Where county patriotism has substantial growth, every effort should be made to put it to good use. County improvement societies may be formed on whose programs would appear such projects as a. Better county roads, b. Better county buildings, c. County high schools and agricultural schools, d. Scenic and historical reservations. But smaller units of organization must be found, even in most enterprising counties. Village improvement societies can take care of the small towns and civic clubs or boards of trade or women's clubs of the larger ones. The county districts must not be forgotten, but should be divided up amongst the grangers and amongst the local farmers' clubs, most of which are still to be organised. We have spoken of the county unit, the town unit, the village unit, and the very indefinite country neighbourhood unit. Before dropping this subject, we must have a look at the state unit. As a matter of fact, there are many civic enterprises of statewide scope, such as state roads, state parks, etc. Let it be distinctly understood that some of the finest civic accomplishments of the last decade have been in this field, and we may reasonably hope for more in the next decade. We have a sort of reason for this, in the significant fact that the civic feeling is stronger within state boundaries than anywhere else in America. A Kansan is more proud of Kansas than all the other stars of the flag. And a Mississippian will do more for a state than for any other geographical unit big or little in the universe. And a New Yorker always thinks that North America revolves around the empire state. Inasmuch as patriotism and civic pride are pretty much one and the same thing, and as this civic pride is the ultimate foundation of all civic improvement, we may properly expect the best results where local patriotism is strongest. And may thus hope to accomplish some of the biggest and best things through statewide movements. A photo is displayed on the previous page: a well-developed farming community, Annapolis Valley, Nova Scotia. The time is now fully ripe for the organization of state campaigns in all states where a fair stage of social and economic development, i.e., a reasonably well-organized civilization, has been attained. Such enterprises promise to be most effective if initiated and directed by the State Agricultural Colleges. A strong, aggressive modern agricultural society can easily put into the field a small corps of experts who will assist the local communities in all the undertakings of civic betterment. These various undertakings are enumerated in the chapter on Improvement Programs, but may be recapitulated here for convenience. These experts carrying this civic betterment propaganda throughout the state, would deal directly with such programs as these. A. Good roads, location, construction and maintenance. B. Roadside and street planting and care of roadside trees. C. Acquisition, planning and management of public reservations, parks, picnic grounds, commons and playgrounds. D. Location and design of school grounds, especially country schools and those providing school gardens, experimental grounds, etc. E. Location and design and care of public cemeteries. F. Care of country churches and church grounds. G. Location design of all public buildings, or especially those outside of cities. H. Design and care of farmyards and village yards. I. Design, service, and sanitation of farm buildings. In every one of these lines, improvement is possible and desirable. Improvement in greater or lesser degree can be secured by putting before the people, systematically and urgently, the best modern ideas of these several subjects. No better line of work for rural betterment can possibly be undertaken by the extension services now organised in many agricultural colleges, or by any other organisations having a view the improvement of country life conditions. A photo is displayed on the following page. New England Farm Buildings and Surroundings All these civic improvement enterprises always look very formidable to the inexperienced person. Talk about town planning, country planning, or a general state plan sounds altogether futile in such years. What can be done, after all, to change the plan of a town already in existence? However, the works of civic improvement are, in fact, much easier to accomplish than the public ever believes. For the greatest part, civic art undertakes only to do in the right way, instead of in the wrong way, things which have to be done one way or the other. Now most people, even town and country officials, would rather do things right than to do them wrong. As the right way is usually the cheapest way, especially in the long run. There is in this fact another strong preference for the best things, whenever the public can be helped to see what plans are actually cheapest and best. The important point is to see that the public has a fair chance to know what is best in an enormous number of cases public questions are decided without this knowledge in an experience in civil work covering several years i have often, often been surprised at the readiness even avidity which some apparently radical suggestions are sometimes accepted i once asked an audience in a country town if they owned any public picnic ground no they said had there any places in town attracted enough for such uses Oh yes plenty of them and then after the lecture and before we left the room three men said they would personally give the land to the town dozens of similar instances could be related illustrating these with which the most substantial improvements are speedily and easily realized when the right idea is favorably presented in other cases more time is needed indeed the time element is of supreme importance in most projects for public works it requires time for any new idea to soak in When a new improvement is proposed, it should be put fairly, fully, and clearly before the public, and kept there. Let it be a plan for a new road, or a public ball field, if a well-studied plan can be widely circulated and properly explained. And then, if the drawings and data can be put up in plan view, in the post office, or other public place, and kept there, perhaps for several years, the work will be eventually carried out. It will almost do itself the people become accustomed to the idea, they accept it as a proper result, and when the proper moment arrives, they will assist in its final realisation. Patience, prudence and preparation are the watchwords of civic improvement. One more point of fundamental importance must be borne in mind, although civic art deals only with the physical features of the community equipment, that is, with public property of one sort or another. These physical ailments do not exist by themselves, and certainly not for themselves. Industrial, social, educational, religious, and other factors are present and powerful in the community life. And it is indeed for these things that their physical equipment is used. Now civic art in any form, village improvement, rural improvement, or state improvement campaign, can go very far by itself. Improvement of the streets depends partially on improvement of local politics, and this in turn on better schools. And altogether on better churches and a growing spirit of honesty and public service. Furthermore, agricultural and industrial conditions must be improved in order that farms and factories may yield larger returns for the support of churches, schools, playgrounds, roads and even cemeteries. All community advancement must be gained by coordinated advance all along the line. Improvement of roads and public grounds must be accompanied by improvement in schools by reforming politics, and by genuine religious revivals. In like manner, a wild religious upheaval without better streets is a waste of breath, or a political reform without better schools is a delusion, or more scientific agriculture without more picnics and better churches and happier households is only vanity and vexation of spirit. A photo is displayed on the following page a Pacific Coast Village, Kelowna, B.C. The great advantages of civic art are two. First, it deals with concrete problems and materials, that is, with property and humanity, especially American humanity, has a most erratical belief in property. Civic art, therefore, supplies the basis on which communities most quickly rally, and on which a genuine cooperation can be most easily and effectively established. Secondly, Civic improvement thereby becomes the indispensable training school for all higher forms of neighborly cooperation, such as deal with politics, educational and religious reforms. In a double sense, civic art is a unique foundation on which to build every kind of civic improvement. Das Regelmärsied Persellerien von Rein und Kommission Standpunkt Ost is bei neuen factor geworden dessen will congen man sick come and zym can troth dem sult man sick tesser land method nick so blindings of gnad and ungnad Obergeben den eben haidurk worden schon leiten des stanbos gaird hecker heket thombenweiss abgeschht Es sind dies old schonheiten wilch macht dich dem water manorish bezereck wo bleiben by einer regelrecht pen Al wrong all day, stress friend, wiggle we see uns im alten Nürnberg and wo sind soft nog er anbleiben entzucken habserlich durch er original etat wedi strozen bilber bim zu so nürnberg oder bim rethos zu so hirbrun, oder der beroreis so zu gorlitz dem petershaus zu so nürnberg and andere welch leider durch fort verheld dem Erlangen von jar zu so jar Wurden werden camillo Der it A photo is displayed on the following page: a pleasant country road in sleighing time. End of section one. Section two of Rural Improvement by Frank A. Wall. This is a LibriVox recording or LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey chapter two means of access if we regard the village as a unit thinking of it as the home of a living community we will see at once that it demands suitable openings for entrance and exit there must be doors there must be some way to get into the town i know a number of excellent towns which are highly inaccessible it is so hard to get into them that people seldom go there there are no railroads there are no trolleys there are no good wagon roads, so the town is isolated. It is put aside from the currents of commercial and social life. Business and society become stagnant, and the town suffers throughout its whole organization. Many feel keenly the disadvantage of being cut off from railroad communication. Many a town has voted itself heavily into debt issuing bonds to secure the entry of a railroad. In former years, such strenuous exertions for railway connections were very common in the Prairie States and have not been unknown in the most slow-going towns in New England. In many cases, the railroad has proved the commercial and social salvation of a town. Almost every town which has a railroad feels the importance of this service and will not for the world think of dispensing with it. What would a town do if the railroad were taken away? The result is too serious to contemplate. In many parts of the country, the old history of the railroad is being repeated in the extension of the trolley systems. Good trolley connections are now as important as railroad connections. In many towns, they are even more important. The trolley has come to be, in a large number of cases, the main entrance and exit. All the while, the wagon roads have been growing in importance instead of decreasing in value. As travel by railroad and trolley increases, travel by wagon and buggy also increases the thing which has brought the highways into special prominence in the present decade has been the unexpected extension in the use of automobiles the public roads have much more use than they had 25 years ago and much harder use instead of decreasing their importance has increased all such roads leading to town whether railroads trolleys, or wagon roads are to be considered as village portals they are the approaches to the town by them strangers come to get their first welcome and old residents return with buoyant hearts to their homes. They are to be considered, therefore, and treated in their proper relation to the community life. Considered it as a welcoming portal to the village, the common railroad depot is often a sad disappointment. It is usually dirty and the grounds both inadequate and disorderly. The place is surrounded by the most unattractive business and the most disheartening architecture in the town. If there are any unsightly coal sheds, any evil-smelling stockyards, any noisome gas plant, these things are certain to welcome the traveller at the railway station. It is just as though a private family should receive all its visitors, friends or strangers at the back door and should meet them with a fine collection of garbage cans and slop jars. The situation, common as it is, is utterly wrong, preposterous and humiliating. A photo is displayed on the page. Good road location showing beauty of gentle curve it can be improved in fact it can be radically changed it is entirely possible for the railroad station to be what it ought to be a pleasing and suitable introduction to the town fortunately we do not lack for concrete examples the famous railroad stations of the boston and albany road in the new towns have been for many years a useful example to the rest of america the Boston and Main Road has developed a few pleasant station grounds. The Chicago and Northwestern Railroad has a number of attractive stations in the neighborhood of Chicago. The Pennsylvania Railroad has been able to secure a number of good examples along their line. Yet for the present, these good examples are in a very small minority, taking it the country through. Such improvements as have been secured in station grounds have been sometimes on the initiative of the railroads And sometimes on the initiative of the townspeople. The railroads themselves really ought to take this matter up. It is their business and they could well afford to do it. In cases where they do not willingly undertake it, the community should bring to bear every pressure which it has at command. Doubtless the most successful method will be that of cooperation with the railroad. The people of the town can do something and the railroad will usually be able to meet them halfway. A picture is displayed on the previous page, plan of a German village showing main entrances. A serious defect in the railway service in many cities and towns lies in the bad location of the railroad station or stations. It is by no means uncommon to find a country town in which the railroad station is placed a half mile, a mile or even more from the centre of the village. The locations in many instances are nothing less than ridiculous. Evidently, they were determined upon by the railroad with very small consideration of the convenience of the public. The day has gone by, however, when the railroad can afford to disregard the needs of its customers. Indeed, very few railroad managers nowadays wish to do it. It is much better business to accommodate the public in every reasonable way. On this account, we may expect substantial improvements to be made under pressure from the community stations will be removed to more central locations and in other ways made more accessible. Difficulties are greatly multiplied when three or four railroads have depots for the same town at widely separated points. I know of a town of 2,000 inhabitants which has four railroad stations, yet the two nearest together are a half mile apart, and one would be required to make a trip of possibly four miles to visit the four stations. Such an arrangement is really intolerable. It ought to be changed at once and in a considerable number of cases, it would be changed if every one concerned could really see how expensive and inconvenient it is. A few moments figuring will show that the people of the town are wasting thousands of dollars annually jaunting about all the points of the compass to reach such scattered depots. The trolley entrance more commonly gives an attractive introduction to the village. The trolley is apt to come in by one of the best and pleasantest streets. The Village Improvement Society should take pains to see that this street is kept clean so as to give strangers a good impression as they arrive. A picture is displayed on the previous page. Plan of Sunderland, Massachusetts. One street town with two main entrances. The trolley is so new, however, that it has not quite found its place in the town. It has taken away a large part of the business of the steam railroad without having accepted quite all the steam road's responsibilities. This is especially the case with reference to waiting stations, and the time must soon come when all the principal trolley lines will provide suitable waiting stations, just as every railroad feels obliged to provide a passenger a freight depot. The Village Improvement Society will then be under obligations to see that these waiting stations are centrally located, without their being put to the town common or permitted to obstruct the street, They are built in attractive designs, that they are kept clean and orderly. The main roads entering a town will, of course, be kept in good repair, and their borders will be kept clean and attractive for the same reasons. Visitors coming by carriage or automobile should be given a favourable impression. The building and maintenance of such roads will be discussed in another place. When any given town or village is studied, it will be seen that the actual entrances are surprisingly few in number. There may be one or two road stations, but aside from this, in the very great majority of cases, the entrances are reduced to three or four main roads. Frequently, the number of important entrances is still less. It becomes, therefore, a relatively simple matter to manage the entrance problem effectively. Most of all, it must always be remembered that these entrances should have the character and dignity of village portals. Civilization has passed the day of city gates. We no longer have walled towns guarded by drawbridge and porticos, In olden times, it was literally impossible to meet a stranger at the city gate and to bring him the keys to the city. The fact that the gates have disappeared, however, does not mean that we are less hospitable than formerly. Indeed, it means quite the opposite. We wish to welcome people freely and cordially to our town. We must see, therefore, that the town entrance is clean, dignified, hospitable, inviting we should give to it the same character which we would give to the front door of a church or to the front doors of our own homes. Roadways are generally made crowning in the centre, so that water runs to the sides, but frequently the fall lengthwise of the roadway is less than it should be. City engineers are usually inclined to make the grade along the length of a street as nearly level as possible. Authorities who have given the subject of roads considerable study recommend a fall lengthwise of not less than 1 foot in 125, nor more than 6 feet in 100. Such grades are not always feasible, but a certain amount of variation in level can usually be made in a resident street, which will make it much more pleasing in appearance, and have certain practical advantages in keeping the street dry. L. H. Bailey, Garden Making End of section 2 Section 3 of Rural Improvement by Frank A. Wall. This is a LibriVox recording, All LibriVox recordings from the public domain. For more information to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org, recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 3. Roads and Streets Road improvement is one of the most obvious forms of rural betterment. It is also one of the most fundamental. It is most closely and positively related to economic advances an improvement in economic efficiency forms the absolute basis of all permanent community progress. Every phase of country and village life is affected by the condition of the public highways, usually profoundly affected. Centralised schools and rural mail delivery wait on good roads, church congregations fluctuate with the conditions of the highways, and one political party or the other carries the election according to whether the rural roads are passable and the country vote comes to the polls. It has been estimated rather carefully that there are two million two hundred thousand miles of public roads in the United States. Between eight and nine per cent of this enormous mileage has been improved by surfacing with gravel, oyster shells, stone, and other material. Something over ninety per cent of the public highways, on the other hand, are totally unimproved. A photo is displayed on the page, vile country road. Thousands of miles like this still exist has been shown also that the average cost of handling farm crops on the public roads of the United States is approximately $0.23 cents per tonne mile. The cost of hauling similar freight on the highly improved roads of France and Germany is known to be about $0.08 cents per tonne mile, or only a trifle over one-third of the average cost in America. A photo is displayed on the page. The improved road improves the school. We may show these differences in our own country by comparing the relatively good roads of Massachusetts with the average unimproved roads of Arkansas. The average cost of hauling farm crops in Massachusetts is calculated to be nine and a half cents the ton mile while in Arkansas it is over twice as much or twenty cents. Inasmuch as the average distance from farm to railroad station is about twice as great in Arkansas as in Massachusetts, the farmers of the former state are paying about four times as much For hauling their crops to market and this computation makes no account of railroad freight charges either the bureau of road inquiry in washington has estimated that in 1906 there were over 200 million tons of farm garden and forest products hauled to railway stations by wagon over an average haul of 9.4 miles which at the rate of 23 cents per ton mile would meet the enormous expense of 432 to 400 thousand dollars and this certainly represents less than one-half the use of the highways. If our roads could have been as good as the best of the French and German roads, so as to reduce this cost to eight cents per ton mile, it would have meant the saving of 278000 to $100,000. Statistics, which we need not stop to quote, will show further that the money spent in this country for road improvement is largely wasted. This is more disheartening than the other fact that the sums raised for road betterments are always too small. Considering these figures which are rough from safe estimates or looking at the matter from any standpoint, it appears that the road problem is one of enormous magnitude and incalculable importance. Road and Street Planning In America, we are too much committed to the rectangular checkerboard system of road design. The damage has gone farthest in the flat prairie states of the Central West, but has gone too far in every state. Towns which are suddenly created, as those of Minnesota and Oklahoma, are most subject to this defect. The town is made first on paper months or years before it exists on the land, and in projecting such a town, it is always easier to draw the map with the straight edge than to follow contours. On the other hand, those villages of New England, Old England, and the Old Country generally, which have grown up gradually and were not mapped until their growth was accomplished, have a very different layout. A photo is displayed on the page, Country Lane Norton. The plan is much more irregular than that of the Oklahoma town. It seems less simple and less logical. The fact is, however, that it is more natural and therefore more logical and convenient. Besides being more natural and convenient, the irregular arrangement is infinitely more pleasing to the eye compare the best prairie town in illinois iowa or nebraska with the poorest rural village in england germany switzerland or northern italy and see how bright and picturesque appears the latter how plain and stupid appears the former borden's study of the problems of street and road design has developed some pretty definite ideas which we may present as simple rules One. Main roads should be as direct as possible between all principal centres. This principle is constantly violated in town and country. The railroad depot may be 8 blocks south and 6 blocks west of the hotel. But the omnibus has to travel 14 blocks to and from every train. While if there was a reasonable diagonal street, the distance would be reduced to 10 blocks. And a haul of 8 blocks saved in every round trip. This would mean a saving of several dollars every day, combining all traffic in the smallest and sleepiest town it is incomprehensible how the big and thriving towns accustomed as they are to take themselves so seriously and to boast of their practical improvements and their business enterprise should ever tolerate such an absurd and wasteful town plan a picture is displayed on the page the modern cement bridge on country road It is an odd fact that the people who live on the central prairies imagine that the rectangular road system is correct and are always laughing at the crooked and irregular roads of the northeastern states the new england system though by no means perfect is much the better for a concrete example let us look at saline county and rice county kansas two counties which almost touch corners from salina the county seat of saline county to Lyons, the county seat of Rice County, the direct distance is roughly 55 miles, say a good two hours ride in a comfortable automobile. But there is no direct road, and the traveler will be obliged to follow section lines all the way, sometimes on good roads and sometimes on poor roads. Turning at right angles every few miles, and covering 80 miles of such road instead of 55 miles of straight trunk roads, which a better system would put at his disposal. 2. Main roads should be well-built and well-maintained. Where there are no main roads, all highways being 66 feet wide, it is difficult to carry out this rule. 3. Secondary roads should be narrower, and the cost of construction and maintenance should be proportioned to their importance and use. In the Prairie States, opened under government survey, all roads are 66 feet wide, a most absurd width for the majority of them. Nine-tenths of these roads could be narrowed to one road in width, leaving less space for the road overseers to care for and adding six acres of farming land to each mile of farms. 4. The radiating or spider-web system of roads is generally best, but this must always be more or less modified to meet the local conditions. Of these local conditions, the most important is the one next to be mentioned. 5. Roads and streets should follow the contours of the land, Instead of being forced in straight lines directly over hills, streets should circle about the hills on practicable grades. The protection of roads, where they cross, railway lines at grade, and the abolition of grade crossings, wherever practicable, are also points to be kept in mind in all schemes of road improvement. A picture is displayed on the page, the concrete bridge on a larger scale, a bridge of beauty as well as utility. In any local scheme of road improvement, there is much to be done besides making the attempt to apply the foreign rules. The rules, indeed, cannot be carried out, except in part, in any established community. More changes can be made, in the course of time, than one would suppose. It is possible by careful study and continued effort to approximate these ideals more closely than the pessimists would admit. Yet in most neighbourhoods, the improvement of the road plan is largely a matter of adjusting details, of clearing up small defects. A heavy grade may be abolished in one place, in another place a bridge may be put in so far as to offer a shorter cut between important traffic points, one road may be turned along a level valley instead of being forced over a hill, another road can be diverted round a swamp, and so on through the list. There is hardly a township in the United States where the road plan could not be improved and in many cases truly revolutionary improvements would be possible. When all practical changes in road plan have been made, there remain such important improvements as cuts and fills, bridges, culverts, drainage, macadamizing, etc. Road improvement is in fact a never-ending task. Kinds of Road Construction There are hundreds of systems of road making, and thousands of variations of these systems. The subject is a large and difficult one, that there have been dozens of books written on it. It would be quite out of place here to take up a treatise on road construction, but it is worthwhile to notice a few of the more important methods, with special reference to their adaptability to rural conditions and village improvement. A picture is displayed on the page, picturesque and solid stone bridge. Of course we must not lose sight of the fact that, with state assistance, and perhaps eventually with federal assistance, In the building of permanent highways. We shall be constantly tending toward more and more permanent and expensive types of construction. While we must urge that more thoughtful study be given to the common earth roads, we must not lose any opportunity to introduce Telford or Macadam. Earth Roads. Taking it the continent over, it would be perfectly safe to guess that 95% of all the country roads are earth roads. Probably a proportionate number of these are of the local soil without amendment. If the road passes over a sandy stretch, the roadbed is of sand. If the way passes over clay or black loam, the roadbed is of the same material. These roads have been constructed at very low cost, thousands of miles having cost practically nothing at all, and the annual maintenance expense is kept in proportion. But the results are not always satisfactory. As soon as the traffic begins to make any severe demands on such roads, they prove inadequate, and substantial improvements are required. Nevertheless, well-made earth roads are often among the pleasantest to travel, and often render very satisfactory service. In constructing earth roads, drainage is a prime requirement. Under drainage with tiles should be applied wherever thorough work is attempted. This should be supplemented by proper side ditches, And surface drainage should be constantly assured by keeping the road crowning and well graded. The proper construction of earth roads is greatly facilitated by the use of good modern road machinery. Gravel roads. Next to the earth road we may place the gravel road. Almost anywhere where any sort of gravel can be secured it can be used to advantage in improving the surfaces of earth roads. However, there are very great differences in gravel roads some being no better than unimproved loam, others being hardly less satisfactory than good macadam. The gravel should be of good quality, that is hard and tough. It should be of different sizes and it should contain or should be mixed with some sort of binding material. Clay is the material most commonly used as a binder, but limestone, ground oyster shells, fine silica and other local materials are often used. Burnt Clay Roads after finding some favour in sections where sand and gravel do not exist, and where stone roads would be too expensive, in such districts where the soil is tough, sticky clay, the common earth roads are particularly bad. During the spring season they may be impassable for weeks. By thorough burning, however, this clay may be rendered so hard as to make a fairly good road material. It is then broken into lumps and rolled into place on the road surface, much as gravel is used. Sand-clay roads sand and clay mixed in proper proportions and suitably worked into place make a most excellent earth road frequently they do not naturally exist in the right proportions there may be too much sand in which case the roadbed cuts to pieces and traction is very heavy or there may be too great a proportion of clay in which case the roadbed absorbs water and becomes sticky and impassable Where these deposits of clay and sand exist in the same neighbourhood, however, they may be artificially mixed in the right proportions, after which, with proper working, they make excellent country roads. A picture is displayed on the page, rustic bridge, beautiful and satisfactory. Oil or tar roads. Various kinds of oil, tar and asphalt have been used in road making. These are applied in various ways to sand roads, clay roads, gravel roads, and even to stone roads. The results vary all the way from complete satisfaction to utter failure. Oil and tar in the hands of experienced engineers seems to be generally rather valuable, more especially in the preservation and maintenance of well-built streets. At the present time, it can hardly be said that these materials promise much for the improvement of rural highways under the management of untrained road overseers. STONE ROADS Telford and Macadam roads constructed of stone at an expense of 3000 to $10,000 a mile have proved altogether the most satisfactory styles of road construction. The initial cost is so great as to limit their use to a small fraction of our national road mileage. The high cost also makes it wise at all times to undertake their construction only under the direction of trained engineers. However, where a reasonable state road policy has been adopted, the view to the development of permanent roads, these more expensive methods of construction should nearly always be used. Even under country subsidy and control, a considerable proportion of permanent stone road ought to be built. Road taxes. Road taxes in America are mostly of three kinds, as follows. 1. Poll taxes, levied in nearly every state, usually at the rate of $2 per head. Often these are payable in labor. many districts practically the whole amount is collected in this form is an old custom and a thoroughly bad one it represents a state of social and political organization too crude to be tolerated anywhere in america where newspapers penetrate the poll tax is unjust in principle and vicious in practice two property taxes levied with other taxes sometimes by towns sometimes by counties and occasionally by states these are it should always be the principal support of the public roads 3 special taxes as those on dogs automobiles and other special luxuries there seems to be an obvious propriety in taxing automobiles for the support of road improvement for these machines are exceedingly destructive to every sort of roadbed on which they run road management the highways of the United States are under various forms of ownership and control Usually control follows ownership, but occasionally state-built roads are turned over to local control. The principal forms of management are by towns, counties, or states. The town form of government, prevalent in the New England states, usually carries with it the ownership, support, and management of the bulk of the roads. The actual management commonly falls to a highway surveyor or similar elective individual, subject more or less to direction from a board of selectmen, and subject further to special instructions through votes in town meetings. In western states, where the town form of government is hardly known, the roads are looked after by districts. There may be two to four districts to each township, with a separate road overseer selected for each district. This system is the least efficient and satisfactory yet devised. The administrative district is too small, the responsibility of the overseer too slight, the interests of the citizens too much scattered the town system in the eastern states is better because the responsibility of the highway surveyor is larger and better enforced in a few states country systems of supervision have been put on trial these systems usually provide for the election of a county engineer or road surveyor with more or less control by the board of county commissioners these county systems have generally been proposed as reforms and two special objects are commonly sought First, a larger accumulation of funds can be applied to the construction of permanent roadways on important routes instead of frittering everything away in little tabs on unused byways. Second, the county can pay the salary necessary to command the continuous services of a trained engineer. On the face of it, this system is much better than the town or district system, but it has not yet established itself widely throughout the United States. Several of the more progressive states have now established systems of state roads, usually employing expert engineers under the direction of a permanent state highway commission. These systems of state roads, supplementing county or town roads, or both, have fully justified their creation. They should be extended rapidly to every state in the union. A good deal has been said about national aid to good roads. National roads have been discussed since the foundation of the federal government and at the present time federal aid is strongly urged by an enlightened and influential section of our population the present writer entertains serious doubts as to the wisdom of this policy feeling that the present tendency to invoke federal aid and control in every sort of enterprise is being enormously overdone and that there is likely soon to be a strong reaction towards state sovereignty under whatever system or systems the work may be done Its very great importance is altogether obvious. Road improvement is one of the most primary, most far-reaching, most persistent forms of rural or village betterment. In this connection, it is interesting to note the findings of the Country Life Commission. A picture is displayed on the page, stone masonry bridge with good plantings. After their extended public hearings, the letter inquiries, covering with remarkable thoroughness all parts of the United States, They had the following report to make on the question of rural road improvement. The demand for good highways is generally among the farmers of the entire United States. Education and good roads are the two needs most frequently mentioned in the hearings. Highways that are usable at all times of the year are now imperative, not only for the marketing of produce, but for the elevation of the social and intellectual status of the open country, and the improvement of health by ensuring better medical and surgical attendance. The advantages are so well understood that arguments for better roads are not necessary here our respondents are now concerned largely with the methods of organizing and financing the work with only unimportant exceptions the farmers who have expressed themselves to us on this question consider that the federal government is fairly under obligation to aid in the work we hold that the development of a fully serviceable highway system is a matter of national concern coordinate with the development of waterways And the conservation of our native resources is absolutely essential to our internal development. The first thing necessary is to provide expert supervision and direction and to develop a national plan. All the work should be cooperative between the federal government and the states. The question of federal appropriation for highway work in the states may well be held in abeyance until a national service is provided and tested we suggest that the united states government establish a highway engineering service or equivalent organization to be at the call of the states in working on effective and economical highway systems nick chederbaum egned sikforchit streze dorketankelos and frezen the boden work and schliesslich auch der entweg nutzen wir in innerster zu beckten sehen wen man der baumschmack auch and entwerten will neckt die gleichart der baum oder Ill fertelung and den wegen mach die kunstlich willkrang sondern die oberlanging planing, die für jeden Den entsprechenen bom zu finden, weitz, der ihm Susamerhag mit dem Ganseng Landschaft bilde, der harmonisch senfote. Robert Meilock, Das Dorf. End of section three. Section four of Rural Improvement by Frank A. wall This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 4. Roadside Trees Nothing goes farther to give a rural village an air of peace, prosperity and happiness than an abundance of well-grown trees along its streets. This truth needs no argument. It is universally accepted. Trees are introduced into city streets as far as traffic will allow, and many miles of country road have likewise been planted. With respect to the country roads, it is easy to judge that tree planting has not gone far enough. Stretches of tree-lined country streets are still decidedly rare, and unquestionably all rural dwellers and country travellers would be glad to have more planting done. It might not be desirable to have every mile of country road bordered by trees, and in some places they would be a distinct detriment. But for the present, everyone is safe in practicing urging on others the planting of good adaptable trees on public and private streets in all villages and rural districts. Such improvements will add to the beauty of any farm. Road planting, if generally undertaken in any neighborhood, would quickly bring that community into high reputation for progressive public spirit. A campaign for the upbuilding of any neighborhood can hardly miss this easy and attractive feature of roadside planting. A picture is displayed on the page. Cut-leaved maples on a narrow village street. On country roads, a good many species of trees can be used which are unavailable in city planting, as, for example, white pines and evergreens generally. These make possible magnificent effects otherwise unknown. Fruit trees, too, are sometimes planted along country lanes. In the apple districts of Nova Scotia, for instance, there are miles of streets glorious in May with apple blossoms, and at harvest time with the ripening fruit. The practice of growing fruit trees on public roads, the community owning the trees, is often recommended in America. The recommendations usually being fortified by citations from European practice. After having travelled all through the countries of Central Europe, I am left with the impression that this scheme of fruit trees on public roads is much less common and much less successful than enthusiastic newspaper writers have allowed us to believe. Tree planting nowadays is largely done on Arbor Day. There is no objection, however, to planting trees on other days. The old Scotsman's advice holds good universally. I. Be planting a tree, jock. Arbor Day exercises ought to be encouraged, though, and more systematically planned for. Each school district or country neighbourhood should have some settled scheme of tree planting. The usual custom of waiting till Arbor Day morning and then looking about to find a corner where some trees may be bestowed is not sufficiently foresighted to suit rational people. There should be a neighbourhood plan in which it is specified, on the basis of proper study and consultation, that this street is to be treated in one way and that street in another. Then, when it is thus deliberately planned to set a certain stretch of public road to pines or oaks or cottonwoods, the school can turn out an Arbor Day, and with the help of parents and friends set a stretch of the permanent rose. In all the northern states, spring planting is the most common practice and is generally to be recommended. In the southern states, winter is usually the better season for setting up trees. A photo is displayed on the following page, natural growth of trees and shrubs giving beautiful roadside effect. Street trees usually receive very little care. Often the small attentions they receive are worse than useless coming from the trolley men or telephone linesmen who cut and hack them to pieces to make way for ugly and unsafe wires. The practice of many wire stringers is hardly less than criminal, and it is a wonder that any civilised community would allow the work to go on unchallenged. In every neighbourhood there would be some officer or some mobile and effective committee especially authorised to take the part of the trees and prevent these shameless, senseless and useless depredations where no other officer has the work particularly assigned to him is the duty of the road overseer or street commissioner to look after the trees they stand in the public roads and are as much public property as of bridges and culverts strangely enough road overseers generally do not take this part of their work seriously not only do they neglect to protect the street trees but many of them are themselves the perpetrators of the most wretched indignities upon their wards a higher standard of morals and common sense needs greatly to be inculcated in these matters. In some states, as in Massachusetts, the law provides for the appointment of special tree wardens. Such officers, if properly chosen, can do a vast amount of good. In any state where the tree warden system exists, an annual conference or school of instruction for these men is of immeasurable value. Each local man attending such a conference has a chance to check up his own work, to see what good ideas have been adopted by the best tree men in his state, to receive expert instruction on insect and fungus diseases and on spraying, and to acquire a new head of enthusiasm to carry him through the drudgery of another year. A photo is displayed on the page, the Wild roadside in springtime. In well-managed parks and on private estates nowadays, considerable time and money are spent in the care of trees. Each good, large tree is worth a large sum of money, running into hundreds and even thousands of dollars. It is fair to say that each mature tree is worth an average annual care of one to five dollars. A village which has 1,000 good mature trees to care for should spend at least $1,000 annually on them, and in sections where elm, leaf, beetle, gypsy moth, the telephone linesman, or other serious pest has to be fought, this cost should be trebled or quadrupled or more. Trees need fertilizing. Some street trees starve to death. In many sections, street trees need irrigation. Trees need pruning, and this work should be done by intelligent men, not left to the tree butcher. Spraying is absolutely necessary in many districts, and would be a paying investment in many others. There are professional men in all parts of the country now who undertake all these kinds of work, but the tree warden or some reliable local nursery man is usually the best one to be instructed with it the professional tree doctors are mostly tree quacks and many of them are humbugs of the first quality though there are indeed a few honest men in the fraternity and another few who really have some expert knowledge of trees the best kinds of trees the best street tree known is probably the american elm it comes nearest the american ideal its broad spreading shady top its arching branches and its general air of dignity commend it strongly to the american taste it is planted by preference everywhere in the region where it succeeds this region however is rather closely limited to the new england states new york state michigan ohio pennsylvania and northern new jersey westward and southward does not succeed so well and though frequently planted is generally less valuable than other species at the present time the american elm is suffering seriously from the elm leaf beetle and with this attack suffers also a waning favoritism. The elm-leaf beetle, combined with many other troubles, has killed thousands of the best elms in the eastern states during the past few years. The beetle can be restrained by proper spraying, but this is expensive and requires considerable political organization as well as horticultural apparatus. The English elm is sometimes planted in America, but does not do well as a street tree. Under no circumstances is it to be compared with the American elm. It suffers equally from the attacks of the elm leaf beetle the cork elm is planted in some districts in the western and central states and is regarded as a very promising sort it is a native of michigan and ontario and is to be specifically recommended in that section next to the elms the sugar maple doubtless makes the most attractive street tree especially for country roads it does its best in the rich rolling uplands of new england quebec ontario new york michigan ohio pennsylvania and northern new jersey thus covering much the same section as the american elm outside of this region it is practically worthless in the central prairie the rocky mountain states the place of the sugar maple is usually taken by the silver or soft maple this is a much less valuable tree and never reaches the size or dignity of the northeastern rock maple it has the advantages however of growing rapidly of withstanding drought. And of being otherwise adapted to the exigencies of street planting in the prairie states along with the soft maple, one finds also the ash leafed maple or box elder, which is suited to even drier, warmer districts. It is planted on the extreme edge of the prairies where no other trees grow. It has the advantage of growing quickly, but very little else to recommend it. The Norway maple is also largely planted as a street tree and while it has advantages in certain localities and perhaps is better adapted than other maples for narrow city streets it is not generally to be recommended a photo is displayed on the previous page roadside made pleasant with apple orchards nova it it is being thus far more widely planted than its merits deserve the sycamore maple stands somewhat in the same class being a good ornamental tree and worth using in special circumstances but not to be compared with some of the native sorts for general street planting. Doubtless the next place in our list of trees belongs to the sycamore or buttonwood. The American species thrives over a wide range, from the eastern seaboard to central Kansas and Nebraska. It is a large tree and requires plenty of room. For this reason it is better adapted to the broad streets of country villages and to country roads than most other situations. The European plant tree, or sycamore, is somewhat more formal in habit of growth, more symmetrical and not quite so large. This makes it better for formal streets. It is a species which deserves more general planting in the central and eastern states. The American basswood, or linden, succeeds throughout the central and eastern states, and is sometimes planted with fair satisfaction, especially on country roads. The European linden is very much better, however, as a street tree, if one succeeds in getting a good variety. There are a number of different varieties sold by nurserymen, but they are so badly mixed at the present time that it would be difficult to separate them. Most of the varieties are fairly good. The linden is particularly good for village and street trees. Another tree which is well adapted to street use is a horse chestnut. The European species being generally best. This is not being used as much as it deserves, and should be more widely planted, especially in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and the central and southern states. It has some defects, but these have been too much magnified by its critics. The Native American ashes, especially the white ash, are good street trees. They are healthy, vigorous, symmetrical trees, and subject to few enemies. They form comparatively low heads, and this makes them inconvenient for planting along the line of sidewalks. For farm roads, and country streets, on suitable soils, they will be found wholly adapted. The oaks have never had the favour which their merits deserve. They make excellent stretch trees. The common notion that they grow so slowly as to make them undesirable is not justified by the facts. The pin oak, red oak scarlet oak and white oak all make good street trees and grow almost as rapidly as the elms or maples when properly established on good soils the pin oak is particularly graceful and attractive as now coming into something like general favour other species of oaks are desirable in particular localities the live oak is everywhere planted and admired in california and the gulf states in the central and southern states on heavy moist land The willow oak is a particularly beautiful tree. Its charm is widely recognised in its native region, but the species has not been sufficiently utilised for street planting, perhaps largely because it does not succeed on high, dry situations chosen for village streets. In the prairie and rocky mountain states, the poplars are widely used and enjoy a well-earned favour. Their rapid growth, freedom from disease, their ability to withstand drought, and other untoward circumstances make them invaluable. In some circles, it is fashionable to sneer at the poplars, but they deserve more kind treatment. The American cottonwood and the Carolina poplar are the most valuable kinds. The Lombardy poplar, sometimes used in the eastern states, is valuable for special effects. It is not to be generally recommended for street planting. The black locust is sometimes planted in the central and western states formerly it was widely used in the eastern states particularly in the district of long island in general it is not suited to american conditions and should not be chosen when other trees can be grown in europe where it is frequently planted it is grown in the form of small pollards, and under this treatment makes an excellent ornamental effect along narrow city streets and about city squares there is very little demand for anything of this kind in america and especially in rural districts the alanthus is worth using in some special instances in the central and southern states. It is particularly good for city streets where the smoke and dust seriously handicap other better species. The hackberry somewhat resembles the elm in general appearance and may be profitably substituted for it in many places in the central states. The honey locust umbrella tree pepper tree various palms and various eucalypti besides other odds and ends of trees are used for street planting, sometimes with excellent effect. All these belong to particular localities and are to be used in special instances. TREES FOR VARIOUS LOCALITIES The following paragraphs will give a general idea of the best trees and those most commonly grown in the various parts of their country. It should be understood, however, that local conditions vary enormously and great care should be taken in all cases to select such species as are adapted to particular soils and other special local conditions. A picture is displayed on the page, wild blackberries and mixed shrubbery along the country roadside. When trees are planted, it is for a long term of years, and mistakes are not easily rectified. It is highly important that trees well adapted to the site should be chosen and a good start made, because the uniformity of the street rows is a very important element in their beauty. New England. The American elm unquestionably stands at the head of New England trees. The second best tree for New England planting is the rock maple. Probably the third best tree for New England conditions in general and especially for planting on the large streets of villages and country districts is a sycamore. Many of the oaks are also desirable and have not been sufficiently used. White pines which cannot be used in cities or even in busy villages, produce magnificent effects when planted in avenues along country roads. An avenue of white pines leading up from the public streets to a farmhouse in the southern manner makes a magnificent effect, though one rarely seen in New England. Other coniferous trees which can be used in New England rural districts are the native spruce and the Norway spruce. The Canada balsam is sometimes planted in New Hampshire and Maine. Central States in this section the american elm is still planted to some extent the silver maple takes the place of the sugar maple the sycamore becomes relatively more valuable and should be widely planted and the poplars begin to deserve considerable notice cattle are sometimes used for street planting but are not generally valuable the hackerberry, the honey locust and the alanthus are worth using as special instances the several species of native oaks should be more widely used. Central Southern States In this district, the cork elm takes the place of the American elm to a large extent. The Carolina poplar is successful and valuable. The American and European sycamores grow especially well and should be largely used. Some of the European lindens are excellent. The native oaks, especially the pin oak, should be largely used. Gulf States in this section the sycamore is still valuable and the american elm is grown to some extent also the cork elm and the hackberry the sweet gum is a beautiful and valuable tree especially for rural villages and country districts a picture is displayed on the previous page pleasing group of roadside pine trees the live oak is everywhere highly regarded and the willow oak should be more widely planted. The native magnolia is quite widely used, especially in villages, but is not often presented in the long dignified street rows as it should be. The camphor tree and the Texas umbrella tree are also used to some extent. Palm trees are occasionally attempted in street plantings, especially in Florida, but the examples of their successful use are very rare. Prairie and rocky mountain states. In this naturally treeless region, species must be chosen which will withstand drought and the poplars are among the best of these. The cork elm is coming into great favour, the American elm being attempted only on the rich bottom lands with relatively large water supply. On land not too dry, the pin oak also does well. In the very driest regions, dependence will be placed on honey locust, hackberry and box elder. It is difficult to secure fine street trees in this section, except in those fortunate localities where irrigation is practicable. Still, much can be done to give the landscape a dress of greenery, to supply a shade for streets and dooryards, and to give villages and farmyards a tidy and homelike appearance. Ever of this kind count for more in such a district than they do in sections where trees grow themselves, and have to be cut down to make room for civilization. Washington and Oregon professor c i lewis writes me that for this region the growing of street trees is more or less in an experimental stage he says the tree that is used more than any other is the oregon maple but it is of doubtful value as a street tree it is more adapted to some of the country roads farm homes etc the corp elm is proving to be one of the finest trees that we have it stands drought and also moisture and is the best elm the black locust is especially good, is a better tree than the honey locust, is long-lived, and has good characteristics for our street trees. The oriental plane is a fine tree, and the European linden should be used more than at present. The scarlet oak, I have noted, also would do splendidly since I have seen quite a number of them in some of our towns. Walnuts are planted to quite an extent, but I do not recommend them. The California maple should be given more of a trial, it has had. The horse chestnut is being planted quite a little. When you get up into East Oregon and the tablelands of the Inland Empire, the box elder, black locusts, and the poplars are the best. The native poplars seem to be the hardiest of all and succeed where many of the trees will fail. California In an admirable article on trees of California planting by Mr. J. Bert Davy in Bailey's Cyclopaedia of American Horticulture. The following trees are recommended for streets 60 feet wide or less. White birch, yellow birch, paper birch, poplar-leaved birch, three species of catapults. C. bignoloids, C. ovata, and C. speciosa. Choloreturia, Panicalata, Heliaezydarach, Umbraculiformis, Palauina imperialis, Rus Sorbis acuparia. Amongst palm trees for similar streets, the following species are recommended: Cordeline australis, C. banksi, C. indivisia, C. stricta, Erythia edulis, Levistona australis, Tracheoparpis Excelsus, Washingtonia filifera, and W. robusta. Other evergreen species, however, are often better than palms. And of these Mr Davy recommends Caesia Baliana, A. Sanyophilia, A Falcata, A linetia, A Longifolia, A nerifolia, Manoporium Latum, Pittosporum eugenioides, P. Tunifoliaum, Herculin Divisfolia. For larger streets of eighty to one hundred feet width, the following deciduous trees are named silver maple, white ash, velvet ash. Thlaxinias velutina, coffee tree, pecan, American cyphermore, Quericus pedancolata, black locust, scotch elm. There are several large, growing palms also, which will serve for planting wide streets. The most popular are Washingtonia filifera, W. robusta, and Livistonia australis. To these shall be added the larger species of acacia and eucalyptus mr Davy also names a long list of trees as suitable for california country roads as follows a list is displayed on the page for deciduous and evergreen fence out pigs we may if we know how and nobody leaves the gate open but to fence out a genial eye from any corner of the earth which nature has lovingly touched with that pencil which never repeats itself to shut up a glen or a waterfall for one man's exclusive knowing and enjoying To lock up trees and glades, shady paths, and haunts long rivulets. It would be an embezzlement by one man of God's gift to all. A capitalist might well as curtain off a star, or have the monopoly of an hour. Doors may lock, but outdoors is a freehold to feet and eyes. N.P. Willis, Outdoors at Idlewild End of section 4